Come, bless the Lord, you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. That is Psalm 134, which along with Psalm 135 are the Psalms appointed for today, Thursday, June the 30th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the uh, story of Balaam in uh, Numbers 23, verses 11 to 26. We're also in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 22, verses 1 to 14, and then over in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, the first 11 verses. So remembering the action here, Balak, the king of Moab, has seen the Israelites who are, quote, wandering in the wilderness, even though God's leading them. He's led them to this place opposite Moab, right on their boundary. And so he presumed that they were there for some nefarious purpose, probably to attack him. So he called for the prophet Balaam, who he says has the ability to bless and to curse. And he called and, and wanted Balaam to come and curse the Israelites. And so Balaam meets with God in the form of an angel who says, don't say anything that you're not told to say. So he, he, has, he has blessed the Israelites, having looked at them one time, and, and now Balak says to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took, care to, I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth, which is exactly what we've been told that God did. He put that prophecy into Balaam's mouth. And now Balak says to him, come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only a fraction of them and shall not see them all. Then curse them for me from there. So what he's trying to do is manipulate and manage the the information the prophet has. And he's going to work with, with the information only that he's given. But the problem is that God sees it all. And if God speaks, then then it's truly blessing or curse. If Balaam does, based on incomplete information, well, then that's just this guy speaking. So he's trying to manipulate this, believing that if he manipulates the information the prophet has, then then he'll get a favorable outcome. And, and it's silly, right? I mean, if he's speaking for the Lord, if a God is speaking through him, then really he's manipulating the information available to God? Seems a little strange, but it's his idea anyway. So he took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Mount Pisgah, and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. He's already done that once, and it didn't work out. So Balaam said to Balak, you stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there, which is exactly what he did the last time. I'm going to go away from you, and I'm going to go meet with the Lord. <clears throat> and the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, return to Balak, and thus shall you speak. In other words, say exactly what I just told you to say. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside the burnt offering, and the princes of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. In other words, it's dangerous. He is for them as the horns of a wild ox. In other words, don't mess with the bull or you get the horns, right? So, for there's no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. I can't speak against them. God has blessed them. 
Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? Behold, a people, as a lioness it raises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it's devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. So he has blessed them, and he has told Balak, leave them alone. Leave those people alone, because their God is with them. It's not a good thing. Just leave it be. It's, it's not that—why are they his enemies? It's because he's decided that they were. They didn't come up against him to fight him. That's not what we've been told at all. And Balak said to Balaam, don't curse them at all and don't bless them at all. But Balaam answered Balak, didn't I tell you all that the Lord says that I must do? So he knows that if it wants to go well with him, then he needs to speak the words of the Lord because he's met this angel on the way, the one that the donkey saw first. He met that angel, and that angel had a sword and said, you better get this right because I'll kill you if you don't. So the Lord's protecting his people through the mouth of this prophet of Baal. And so he's protecting his people by by not allowing this prophet to speak against them. He's also, at the same time, in so many ways, protecting Balak, the king of Moab. His territory is not part of the land that the people are going to be given. I don't have any earthly idea why he sees this and perceives it as a threat, except for the well, the, the numerical the numerical disadvantage he's at at this point, and he presumes that they've come to take his land. But nonetheless... This is what he's going to do. And so he's given the information that he needs to leave these people alone. Will he do it? In the gospel today, Jesus, remember, is is coming to town, and he has spoken words already. He's spoken now twice already, parables, against the leaders of the people. The first one was the the story of the, the man who told his sons to go into the fields and get some things done, and one said he'd do it and then didn't do it, and the other one said he wouldn't go, and he did. And then Jesus said, so who did the will of the Father? Well, it was the one who actually did something. And so he, he's comparing them to the one who says, yes, I'll go, and then doesn't do what he said he would do. And then he tells the one about the one, man who builds the, vin, the king who builds the vineyard. And gets everything ready and then lets it out to tenants and then they kill his servants and then ultimately kill his son in the belief that if we do that then we'll get the we'll get the vineyard ourselves and then the man comes and well destroys them all and now he tells a third one and again jesus spoke to them in parables saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast but they would not come now the, the one little piece of cultural information here that you need to know is is that so you remember in the parable of the the foolish virgins. So you've got these 10 virgins uh, who are waiting for the bridegroom to come that they might escort him to the wedding feast. And what they're waiting for is for him to finish the work of adding a room onto his father's house. And when that work is done and when it's approved by the father, then the wedding can take place, but only then. And so there's a job that he has to do. And so when Jesus says, in my father's house, I, I go to prepare a place for you, that's the imagery. It's bridegroom imagery. And so there's a time when Jesus is, quote, preparing a place for us as a bridegroom would for a bride. And, and until that work is done, we won't have the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so here, that's the thing. There's an announcement of a wedding, but the specific date and time are a little loose. But if you've been invited by a king, right, you're going to make, you're going to keep your schedule clear. And so what's happened here is they've been told of the rough time, and now they've come to say, okay, it's tomorrow. 
It's time, or it's today, it's whatever. It's time for the feast now. And so they've already RSVP'd and said, yep, I'll come to the wedding. And now when it comes time for the wedding, however, they won't come. Like that son in the first parable that I mentioned who said, yep, I'll be there, and then or I'll go to the fields and then doesn't do it. So that's exactly the same kind of issue here, except now we're talking about the son of a king who's being married, and people are like, eh, no, I'm not going to go. So again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared the dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Really? This is a king. I mean, this is a, it's, it's like, this is not just sort of negligence. It's not an oversight. No, 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 no. It it is a settled intention to come against the king by refusing to come to his son's wedding and by shamefully treating his servants and killing them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. So the, the parable here is pointing to the nation and saying, you're not worthy because you refuse to come and you shamefully treat those who come to tell you of this thing, the prophets. And so now he, he goes and destroys them and says, here's the thing. Go out in the main roads and invite everybody you see. <clears throat> and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all of them they found, both bad and good. I mean, they didn't even make a distinction between these people. They just said, come on, we need, a, we need a crowd here. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. The, the other cultural thing you need to know here is, is that when you went to a wedding, you were provided with a garment to wear at the wedding. You know, it's not a disposable garment exactly, but, but it, you're, you're to put it on, and that signifies that you're a, an invited guest at the wedding. You're not an interloper. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. In other words, he, did, he didn't even bother to give an answer. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him head and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And, and that's the way it is. We don't get to come to the wedding any way we choose. We, we get to come to the wedding as invited guests, but we come covered in the garment that he has given us, which is his son the righteousness of Jesus. If we don't come in the door, into the wedding feast, through the righteousness of Christ, then we don't get to stay. There's only one way. There's not multiple ways. All religions don't lead to this same place. The other religions, if you come and you, you don't know Jesus and you're not claiming to be covered in the blood of Jesus and his righteousness, if you're not making a profession of faith on who he is and what he did and what that means, then it isn't going to go well for you at that wedding feast. The judgment is real. Judgment is real. In the, the, the epistle today, Paul's continuing the, to speak about the effect and the point and the purpose of the law, but, but how we have transcended that in Christ Jesus. Like I said, in Galatians, he said the law is a pedagogue. God gave it to us to get us to the place where when Jesus came, we could recognize him and we could receive his Holy Spirit and we could become like him. But it, it was a pedagogue. It was a way of teaching us and directing us and disciplining us until we were ready for maturity when we could walk freely in the Spirit 
and receive the Spirit. He said, he's contrasting in all this the, the flesh and the Spirit. And I want you to understand something, because I read an article today that, that troubles me, and, and I hope i am not been guilty of, of not getting this clearly enough. When I speak about the, the, the flesh, that's not just sex. It's all kinds of things. It's everything to do with, with my body. My body is important. It's the temple of the Lord, Paul says in Corinthians. But, but there apparently is this weird belief out there that, it, that is growing in intensity and growing in, in uh, sort of uh, evangelical circles that the resurrection is a spiritual resurrection and that our bodies actually have no point and purpose because of this dichotomy between flesh and spirit. And that's not what it means. That is not what it means. It, it makes a hash of the incarnation that Jesus came and took on flesh and then talks about resurrected bodies. It, it completely makes a hash of the incarnation. It, it tears down the entire salvation narrative if the body doesn't matter. No, you will get a glorified body. Absolutely. But the sins of the flesh are not limited by any stretch of the imagination to sex. I mean, there's gluttony, there's I mean, everything that we, that we do. We covet, we envy, we, all the things we do. We steal, we you know, lie, all that stuff. That's sins of the flesh. And the purpose of giving the Spirit is so that we no longer are, are captives or prisoners to the desires of the flesh. We can actually live by the Spirit and say no to the flesh. That's the point. The, the flesh is intended to be perfected. And that's the point of it, is to perfect it. Not that it doesn't matter or that it's immaterial. It is incredibly material, and the incarnation tells us that. God had other ways he could have saved us, but they wouldn't have been the right way because they wouldn't have been enfleshed. That's important. We'll retain this fleshly existence all throughout eternity. We'll just have glorified bodies because these were designed for obsolescence. It's planned obsolescence in these. And, and the thing that we need to get our heads around is, is, is that we'll retain similar kinds of identities throughout eternity. We don't become like angels in the sense that we have their bodies. We become like angels in the sense that there's no reproduction that happens in in those glorified bodies. But but no, the, the point of giving the Spirit is not to deny the flesh, it's to help us perfect the flesh and to live not from those desires like animals would, but that we might transcend those and, and have other values rather than just desires. So there, there's the no, therefore no condemnation, he says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean there's no conviction. Conviction is, hey, that's sin. You need to get away from that. Condemnation would say, there's no hope for you because you sinned. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So sin doesn't lead to death because of the law of the Spirit of life, because Jesus took that sin on and died on the cross and has overcome death, not just for himself, but for all of us who have the Spirit. He said, for God's done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. 
So we answer to a higher law, but that law is within us. We can transcend the desires of the flesh. That was the very first sin, was a sin of the flesh, right? Because it it was um, desirable to make one wise. That's a sin of the flesh. But it was good to eat in spite of the fact that we were told not to eat it. It was attractive to look at. Those are all sins of the flesh, where we're giving in to desire and living at the level of an animal. We were given a different spirit right from the beginning. In order that we might communicate with God, we were made in his image and likeness. Made to know good and evil, not by ingesting it, but by relationship and conversation with him. He says, so those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So we can transcend those things. We can, we can set our minds and our hearts on the kingdom of God in a way that an animal can't. So we're given a new spirit that would allow us to live at a higher level. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh can't please God. It's impossible. And, and as I've said this before, that one of the things that when, when I looked at the articles of religion with my church or in multiple times, one of the biggest pushbacks I get from people is, is, that, is that they would say, what, what about good works prior to salvation? And that's one of the articles of religion. It says there's no such thing. They're not done for the glory of God. If they're not done for the glory of God, then they are, they are de facto not good because good means glory of God, period, end of sentence. We lose control of that definition, and that's why people argue with me <laughs> over that thing. Good has a biblical definition, not a, hey, that looks like a good thing to me definition. No. Does it look good to God? And if it's not done for God's glory, then it can't really be called good, even though in the world that term can be used. In the church, we have to understand that in a different way. And he says, those in the flesh can't please God because they're doing them for wrong motives and in wrong ways, not according to God's way of doing them. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Now, let me quickly say, before I go on from that, that that doesn't mean that the world doesn't have something to teach us, frankly, because we should be um, um, spurred to good works by what we see people in the world do. And we ought to be able to look at that and go, hey, there's a different way of doing that. And we should take that. That that we can say that that's something the church ought to be doing, actually. And then we can say, let's do it the way the church would do it, with with the goal of bringing glory to God, which would mean lifting up His Son. So that that I gotta quickly say doesn't mean that we have nothing to learn from the world. Sometimes the world goes out and does things that we ought to be doing but aren't. So anyway, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, he's not saying the body has no purpose. That is not what Paul means when he says that. He said, we have already died, in fact, but we now live from the Spirit, which is life. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The body matters. It matters a lot. It, we can learn from the world sometimes. Balaam here got it at some level, and the only level he got it as is, I'd like to live, therefore I'll do what God tells me to do. Didn't mean he became a prophet of God because ultimately he tells 
the king of Moab how to pretty much wreck God's people by sending the women in there and enticing the immorality and to Baal worship. So he's not working completely for God. He, he didn't give his life over to God and say, I'm going to be a prophet of Israel now. No, he continued to be that one, but he was not able to do what he would have preferred to do here because he would have been financially blessed, but his life was worth more to him than, than that. So it, it's always important that we live in the Spirit and we do the things that God leads us and tells us to do. But it's important that we do those things, and that's the point of the parable, that, that we, we should do those things. We show our love for him by what we do and living according to his will and his way for our lives.